Bigger than Capes. Give me some outsiders. And welcome to Bigger Than Capes. I am Angela, and this week I am joined by the writer of Scouts Honor, The OZ, Going to the Chapel, and Spencer and Locke, uh, David Peppos. Hello, sir. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you today. You're welcome. So, um, anyone who's checked out our website will know we have been reviewing Scouts Honor. So, if we can start with asking you a bit about Scouts Honor. Sure. And I guess the most obvious question is, were you a scout? <laughs> so, I have an interesting answer for that in that my younger brothers were scouts. I was not. Um, there's about a, almost a 10-year age gap between me and my younger siblings. And my younger siblings are triplets. And so... Ooh. For me, I was like the crash test dummy baby where like I didn't do a whole lot of extracurriculars because my parents were still figuring out how to be parents. Um, whereas when the triplets were born, it was like, let's throw them into all the extracurriculars so we can get a house to ourselves again. Um, and so my brothers uh, both had some fairly short lived careers as Boy Scouts. And I think that really informed the, the, the series in a big way as being the outsider looking in. Um, for my brothers, it was all about the camaraderie and it was learning practical skills and hanging out with your boys and maybe a little friendly rivalry thrown in as well. Um, whereas for me, you know, you see the outfits and you see the bylaws and you see the rituals and you see the traditions and you don't have to squint too hard to sort of make that leap to what if that looked like a cult. And yeah. that that was really the central kernel of kind of how that book started was what's the weirdest thing that somebody could use as a Bible? And when I thought of a Boy Scout manual, I had all these memories coming back of my younger brothers. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that would be really weird. And really, that the ball kind of started for, from Scout Town right there. So that, ah, so that was the inspiration behind it. Because yeah. I was going to say, there is, there is clearly a connection between the Scouts and a religious cult. It does feel a bit like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it, the Scouts are very much, and, you know, it's funny, you know, they... For, for an organization that actually started in Britain um, yeah. before, before being taken to the U.S., um, I think it's really kind of dovetailed into sort of the evangelical streak that the, that the U.S. in particular has had over the last 70 years. Um, and I, I, yeah. I feel like, you know, we, we tied in things like Scientology. Um, I've been watching a show called The Path with Aaron Paul that was like a, a very big inspiration on this is sort of uh, what happens when you try to leave a Scientology-style cult. And kind of what happens to you, what happens to your family, what happens to the cult itself. Um, but I think, you know, you, you look at it and it's kind of like, well, the U.S. especially, you know, we've got this sort of culture of toxic masculinity. We've got this fetishizing of the military and survival preppers. We've got this sort of rise of this evangelical uh, megachurches and kind of, you know, turning our noses at, at education and critical thinking. And you kind of put all that in a, in a cauldron and throw a couple nukes at it. And suddenly the Ranger Scouts don't look that far-fetched. Um, no. it, it's definitely a book that when I pitched it, it didn't seem, it, it seemed timely. But then as I wrote it during a pandemic, it seemed <laughs> really timely. 
Um, and in, you know, just based on kind of the way that the comics industry works, I had pitched this well before the pandemic started, but by the time I got my contract and we actually started work, it was about a week before everything shut down in the U S and so it definitely, um, it was a book that felt very real. And the fact that like the first day it came out, there also was like an attack on the Capitol, um, you know, a violent insurrection and, and just, it was a book that felt sometimes uncomfortably timely. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like at the same time, anybody who's read my work, I tend to start bleak and then I try to work my way out. And so, you know, yes. it's sort of, it's always darkest before the dawn. And so I feel like, you know, I think people who have, who have read our most recent issue, issue four, I think they're starting to see the, the light starting to, to kind of filter through. And we're going to kind of ride that uh, for our fifth and final issue that'll be coming out next month. And so, uh, yeah, it's just, um, I always try to work my way up. Uh, I don't want to write bleakness for bleakness's sake. Um, I want there to be a point. Uh, Because I do, believe it or not, believe in happy endings. And uh, Scout's Honor is going to be no exception to that. That, That's good to know. Because it is, I like how you said that it is bleak, but it it does go up. And that's that's what I like. Because it is very timely. And obviously... It's been a bleak time yes. <laughs> and it's nice to have a bit of hope. And I think that's what's really good about Scouts Honor is even though, man, yeah. there's some bleakness. <laughs> it's never without that kernel of hope in there. And yeah, I mean, issue four, I think is probably the best one yet. I know you're quite fond of issue four. Is it's that my right? Favorite. I think it's my favorite of the whole series, to be honest. Um, I think it speaks most to some of the personal elements that I've had for this book. Um, I, I've talked about it before, but in a lot of ways, um, Scout's Honor, all my books are semi-autobiographical to some extent, but I think Scout's Honor might be the most. Um, you know, I was raised in a, in a particularly conservative, both politically and religiously, uh, Jewish household in the Midwest. And it wasn't until I left home that I kind of suddenly, it was very jarring to realize like all these things that I had been raised to believe weren't really as set in stone as I had Mm. been taught. And it was so disorienting having to kind of recalibrate your own internal compass based on new knowledge. Um, And yet I think that's a quintessential part of coming of age. And so that in a big way really informed the structure of Scout's Honor. Um, The thing is, I said, you know, it's an anti-cult book, but I wouldn't say it's an yeah. anti-religion book. Um, you know, I, I I cling to my identity as a Jewish person. Um, my spiritual path is very different than my parents, which is very different than that of their parents. Mm. And Judaism in particular as a religion, it's based on literary analysis. You've got five different rabbis giving ten different interpretations of the same passage. And then we keep all of that apocryphal stuff in the margins. So it's it's built on a yeah. wide spectrum of interpretation and, and, and belief and, 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 and practice. Um and Scout's Honor, building up that world in that sense, you're kind of like, all right, like you've got the, the Boy Scout imagery, you've got the post-apocalyptic imagery, where's the religion in this? Um, yeah. You know, the creation myth is based on explosions and bombs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, think, I think issue four in particular really speaks to like, you know, faith can be, can be used to justify some awful, hideous things and has been quite a bit mm. in history. But on a personal level, on a one-to-one level, sometimes faith is that thing that carries you across the finish line when you've got nothing else left in the tank. It's something that, what do you believe in? 
you know? Yeah. And, and that doesn't have to be religious. That doesn't even have to be spiritual. What do you believe in that's bigger than yourself? And I think yeah. we all have to some extent. Uh, and that is the thing that I think we get to dive into the most in issue four um, out of the whole series. And so it's it's sort of, it's a quieter issue compared to like the Hunger Games style uh, Eagles Garden trials that we had in the previous issue. But I think it's the most personal and I think it's the most intense. And um, so I'm I'm so thrilled with how it came together. You know, when at least for me, I don't know if it's different for other comic writers, but for me, I'm always holding my breath until the colors and letters come in. That's when I kind of know, did this thing, like, did we stick the landing? Yeah. And when it all came, when when Christina Harrington, our editor, sent me the final PDF, and I was like, oh, thank God. Okay, it worked. <laughs> it turned out. Um, and so, yeah, issue four, it's really, it's really my favorite of the bunch. Um, and uh, I'm so thrilled that so far people really spe- seem to be responding to it. I think it's because, like, like you said, it's something we can all relate to, that faith and belief, no yeah. matter what the background is we've most of us have that sort of experience i was brought up catholic so i have (laughs) i have issues um with organized religion so having i definitely i could personally relate to to what was going on there and and all about personal belief and personal faith and how that can actually push you forward was actually i thought very that was really nice thank you yeah i think so much of this book is kind of like you know for kid especially it's kind of like she was raised believing something and in certain ways you know the Ranger Scout creed, you know, it's all about self-sufficiency and it's all about surviving in kind of a lawless, dangerous landscape. But then she's finding out that there's all this sort of sinister stuff going on underneath the surface and it breaks her heart. And so yeah. she's kind of got to figure out how do you extract those those toxic pieces and what what do you keep? How do you how do you how do you move forward without throwing out the baby with the bathwater? But what do you replace those missing pieces with? How do you yeah. refine your trajectory? And so um, we'll get into that in issue five as well. And um, I will say that um, there's another character that I think it's a really strong emotional moment in our last issue mm. uh, that we weren't able to quite get into in issue four. But uh, I'm 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 really happy. I think we're we, we might be saving the best for last. See, this makes me happy. <laughs> This makes me happy. Did you have the whole thing plotted out from the get-go? You knew exactly where it was going to end? Or was it like, did you change your mind at all? Yeah. So, well, this was an interesting process in general. Um, that that's, Scout's Honor was very different than any other book I've put together. Because most series that I do, it's it's I, what I call the image model. You know, you, you come up with the whole story. You find your own team. You self-finance. You put together however many pages you're going to pitch with, and then you shop it around. It's very thumbs up, thumbs down, very binary. Yeah. Um, but there are some publishers like Aftershock or Boom um, wow. where they want to be more hands-on. And so, like, for example, um, this is the first book I've had my creative team match made for me. This was That, that was very new and definitely a learning curve for sure. Um, but on top of that, that means that Aftershock, there was kind of a staggered way of going about the pitch process. Where at first I said here's a series of log lines of some, some concepts that I'm interested in. And if anything stands out to you, let me know and I'll flesh it out. It's funny because I had a, a lot of longstanding concepts, some of them that are still longstanding uh, on that list. And Scout's Honor was the one that I had come up with like two weeks prior. Um, and of course, that's the one that they went for. And I was like, oh, crap, that's the one I've done. No, no thinking, no research. So I, I, wrote, I wrote that outline in about a month. Um, and well, what happened was, when I first pitched it, there was no Kip. The idea of Kip being a woman 
came during the outline stage. It was not during the logline. It was when Aftershock said, oh, yeah, let's do the post-apocalyptic Boy Scout. Like, let's see what, see what you can come up with there. I first I was like yes excited and then secondly I was like oh crap that like an all male book is not gonna fly in when I pitched it, it was 2019 and I was like that's not gonna fly um, and then I realized like no lean into that like let's make the lead character a woman who has to sort of survive in this very patriarchal male dominated society um, lean into it that is weird um, and there were definitely some things that 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 changed a bit um, in the outline stage. Um, even in the scripting stage, um, this is a fun little bit of trivia. The uh, the Scout's Prayer that I opened issue four with was actually originally the introduction issue two. And um, I had written, issue two was a fun, I, I'm very proud of that issue because I wrote a script, sent it to Aftershock, they approved it. And then as soon as they approved it, I had this sinking feeling in my stomach being like, I could do better. And so I rewrote it. I, I rewrote about 75% of issue two. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so some, some bits I strip mined, um, like the, 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 the scouts prayer. I was like, I'm going to save that. Um, I think that, that we could use that for, for, for a more desperate moment. Um, the, the, uh, the bit of Des and Kit, uh, sharing a kiss and sort of that miscommunication that really kind of, uh, puts a wedge in their friendship. Yeah. That was in, in that moment. Um, so, um, yeah, there were, there were definitely little bits and pieces here. I will say there's, a. <laughs> I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't spoil anything. There were two bits of art in this particular issue, issue four, that when you're kind of racing the clock on deadline and when you're working for a publisher like Aftershock, they have pretty strict deadlines as far as the art goes. I was well ahead of schedule for the scripting, but you know. I have it easy. I don't have like drawings, manual labor, you know, like that's yeah. actually work. And so, uh, and Luca uh, doesn't speak English. We're, we're translating all of our scripts through his agent. And so there were a couple little curveballs in the art that came in. There were two to be exact that I was kind of like, Oh, the art came in and Luca does not have time to redraw this. So I had to kind of like pivot a little bit to be like, all right, how am I going to rewrite this in lettering to make this work? I'm really happy how it, how how it turned out, and and the fact that no one has seen it is it was a a good learning experience for me as a writer, just to be like you really don't have to be that precious. Like you can you can be nimble, you can figure things out. Um, but yeah, there have definitely been a lot of changes um, to to you know just it was it was an ongoing evolving process writing this book more so than I think anything else I've written, and I think it's because the uh, the timetable was so much faster. And because this was my first experience with, with a, a bigger publisher like Aftershock, um, especially working with Mike Martz, who I've known since I was in college, um, back when he was a DC editor and I was a DC intern, um, I was like, I, I can't screw this up. I, I, have, to, I have to do this right. Um, and so as a result, I've really had to become like a more nimble writer and really figure out like when I'm writing scripts, what kind of reference do I need to put in so my artist knows what to do? How do I measure twice so my artist can only cut once? Yeah. And I think it's been a really good experience, and I think it's something that I'll be taking with me uh, for every project I do uh, down the line. Yeah, I was going to ask, how is it working with, well, there we go, Luca, who doesn't speak English? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and a creative team that, did Aftershock suggest them to you then? Was that how it went? Yeah. So, so what happened was, um, so, so it's funny. We were, we were, we were figured I signed my contract a week before everything shut down 
and I, I actually, I, I had gone home um, to, to Missouri for, for a funeral while I was like getting the contract and while uh, Mike and Christina were being like, okay, here's some potential artists. And we were kind of going back and forth for a little while on it because I, I'm very picky. I feel like I, uh, that's been like the secret to my success is I, I have a pretty strong idea of what I want. And having been a critic before I became a creator, I always approach any project with what would I have said if I was a critic, you know, and if I, if I, if I wouldn't like it as a critic, I don't feel like it's right to present it to readers. Um, And so we, we went back and forth. Uh, I know Mike gave me a list and then I gave Mike a list and then Mike said, oh, hey, actually Luca Casalinguida is looking for work. And I was thrilled when he said that because I had actually reached out to Luca um, years ago about another project. And he was uh, busy working on a small independent book called James Bond. And <laughs> so he, he couldn't do it at, at the time. And so I was like, I already know Luca's work. I'm really familiar with it. Um, and I was like, you know, if Luca feels confident pulling this off, then uh, yeah, I would love to have him. And so uh, we, we got Luca on board, I think, like that day. I think wow. I, I think it was it was it, it was very hurry up and then like full speed ahead, um, and then uh, Matt Miller. I think Matt might have been the final person we brought on board. It was it was him or Carlos uh, Manguel, our letter. Um, but uh, Matt, I remember Christina saying, "How do you feel about Matt Miller on colors?" And my I remember my response was, "We're allowed to do that," uh, just because you know Matt is is, is such a, a prolific colorist over at Marvel. You know, uh, I'm such a huge fan of his work on Daredevil. And um, the thing that Mike taught me when I was at DC is that, um, you know, good art makes or breaks a comic. Everybody knows that. But um, it's good colors that make or break your art. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very deliberate about who I work with on colors, um, perhaps more so than I am with even the line art. I have to find the right colorist. And yeah. so um, Matt, I was just like, oh, yeah, um, that's wonderful. I, that's somebody I don't have to worry one bit about whether or not he's going to nail it. I think in in the five issues that we've done together of Scouts Honor, I can count on one hand the number of times I've asked for any changes. Um, he's that. He's the real deal. And then um, Carlos is fantastic. Uh, you know, he, he really adds a nice like grittiness to this. Yeah. Story, just in the, in the lettering choices. It's something that I wouldn't have thought to do. Um, but I think when I saw it, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And it's a way that kind of like makes the book stand apart, um, you know, from anything else I've done in the past. I know when, when we were putting it together, um, I was particularly worried about, you know, oh, is there going to be too much overlap with the OZ, which I had been working on for quite a while um, on that. And seeing the final product and seeing how they've sort of come out, I'm like, oh, these feel very different to me now. Uh, but at the time, that was like my biggest concern. And I think Carlos in particular, uh, it's a subtle tweak, but it's one that I'm like, oh, yeah, that really makes this book feel different. And so um, it's been nice, but it's also been a lot of pressure. You know, I'm the new guy, comparatively speaking, to all these other people who have much bigger credits and a much longer list of credits. And so it's really inspired me to kind of bring my A game where I'm like, I have to. Um, I can't. If this book fails, it's not going to I, I, it can't be on me. And no. so that's really, uh, that's raised my blood pressure maybe, but it's definitely, it's, it's pushed me, uh, to really go to the mat, uh, for this book. Yeah. I was going to say it, it is, it does feel a complete book. It's not one of those books where you go, nah, the art's not great. Uh, it would be great except for the coloring or except for the lettering. 
every part of it is really good. Thank yeah. You. Yeah, that's what and I like that you mentioned the letterer because we have a we have a thing with bigger than capes that we do pay attention to the lettering and we feel like with <laughs> we feel a little bit geeky doing it, but you're quite no. right. Even you know, the lettering feel, is important. For me and you know, I, I feel a sense of gratitude. Every time, you know, for every element of this work that I do, whether it's it's writing the scripts or whether it's finding the creative teams to work with or even doing publicity for the book. You know, I, I feel like I tried every stable job and I don't know if I was necessarily that good at them. Um, this is a job that I feel like I can be good at. And it's, it, you know, um, when I was in college, I asked myself, what's my astronaut job? And this is it. I'm in my astronaut job. And so um you know, I feel like every single person who works in my books in some capacity, like I owe them huge for it. Um, and especially I especially the letterers, because I feel like if I have one weakness as a comics writer that I'm still kind of shaking out, I have a pretty strong metric of like how many words can I fit per panel or per caption or per balloon. But I always tend to forget that some words are longer than others. And that makes the metric get really screwed up. And so I feel bad because I oftentimes, you know, my letter, the first pass comes in and I'm like, oh, that balloon is way too long. I got to cut, 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 cut. And so I always thank my letterers uh, because I'm like, I'm sorry that we have to make these changes. We're not rewriting, but like, I know it's, it's time out of their schedule that they'd rather not have to waste on me. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, I always say like, I promise the final product will be worth it. And um, and and thankfully, any any time that a, a a a collaborator gets annoyed with me in the process of making a book, I'm like, just wait till the book comes out, and then it comes out, and they're like, okay, I guess you were worth it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they they were all worth it in this case. Yeah, they're all worth it in the end. All worth it. Everyone's worth it in this one. Um, so we've mentioned kits. Can we dig a little bit deeper into kits? Because yeah. it's it's. Kit's one of those strong characters, but is what well, I strong character is such a nondescript term these days because everyone uses it. But what I like about Kit is that her strength isn't necessarily in the physical, which she's definitely got, yeah. but it's also in the faith and the belief and the grit and determination. Yeah. So how do, I mean, we one thing we have tried to do in the reviews is try and not use too many she pronouns. Sure. Because how do, how do you view Kit as that sort of a character? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, first off, I, I it's funny because people have asked me like, what what sort of pronouns would Kit prefer to use? And it's it's one of those things. You know, I had said like she and her, but I think I think as I had written it and as I had worked on the book. I think it's one of those things, I think that's because that sort of, that conversation wouldn't be had in the post-apocalyptic sort of yeah. Boy Scout universe that she's in. Like, like I have the feeling if if Kit was living in, like, modern day 2021, 20, that might be a very different conversation, you know, of, of somebody who might consider themselves gender fluid or non-binary. Um, but at the same time, like, I, I knew walking in, like, this would be a character that like, especially would, uh, you know, resonate with trans readers. You know, I mean, this is a character yeah. who, is, who is binding her chest and we, we had a, a conversation about it. Um, Cause I really wanted to be careful with that. Like I wanted to make sure that like we weren't being exploitative. We, that we certainly wouldn't, you know, appe- you know, try to make this titillating, you know, or anything like that. And we, we have um, some, some lines in issue four that I, 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 I felt, 
you know, based on, on the conversations I've had with, with trans friends and people who, who do wear binders, it's about feeling comfortable in their own skin and, and feeling and feeling like they present as as who, who they identify as. And that's where I felt like it kind of converged is that like Kit, you know, at the end of the day, when you strip everything away, Kit is, is isn't just a true believer, but Kit's like Kit is risked at all because she wants to be a ranger scout. And so every time that she puts on that binder and every time she puts on those merit badges, she's like, I'm self-actualizing and in, in, in exactly the way that I want to be. Um, and I, I feel like every time that I try to tackle something that might be considered a tightrope, I guess, you know, I always, my, my, I always defer to how can I be humane about it? You know, um, like I, I know, uh, nobody's experience is going to be holistic. It's never going to be sort of representative of the whole, but how, you know, I never want to punch down, you know, I never want people to feel like I'm trying to exploit their lived experience or to thumb my nose at it. You know, that's certainly, and so Kit in particular, um, that was something that I w- I've always been thinking about with this book. Scouts honor in a lot of ways, you know, like I talked about my, my Midwestern upbringing. And when you strip this whole book away, it really is about, you know, a small conservative isolated town and what happens to people who don't fit that rigid uh, heteronormative mold. Um, You've got Kit and, you know, I'll have some minor spoilers, but, you know, the idea of making her best friend Des uh, gay, I thought was a really important thing to add into this book because it's sort of, it's it's approaching it from a different angle um, where it's sort of, he's the pastor's son who's in the closet. And how how tragic is that? That's you know I like I love writing Kit, but I, I as I've written the series, I feel like Des might be my favorite character in the book. Um, he he is the Loki to Kit's Thor, but he's deeper than that. Like there's yeah, I get why I get what is sort of driving him because he, there's sort of that he's caught between who he is and trying to be true to himself and the crushing expectations of his society and of his father and this overwhelming feeling that because of Kit, he'll never measure up. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that's the thing that kind of unites them in a tragic way. They're best friends who each have a a, a secret that is really, that it it is a core truth about them that they can't tell each other. And what's it like to kind of live your life with that emotional armor up? all the time that you always have to be on your guard, always have to be watching your back. Um, That's kind of crushing. Um, And I think that's a journey that I think a lot of people go through. Um, I think living a true authentic life is, can be a lifelong struggle for people, uh, especially the more conservative uh, their upbringing. And um, so I, I, I always tried to be as humane about it as I could be with these characters. And I think by the time you read our, our fifth and final issue, um, I think both characters get a nice sense of closure that I think uh, they'll 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 get to 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 live their 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 authentic life in the sun. That that's good. I'll keep an eye out for that. Yeah, <laughs> but no, it's great because he is very sympathetic, yeah. even though he's Kit's rival. You really yeah. do feel for his situation as well. I like does a lot, um, and when I saw Luca's design for him, um, I was like, yeah, that's. Like, Kit, it was kind of in my head already, like, you know, just saying, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be an, an androgynous figure. 
And I I tend to lean towards murderous gingers in my work um, and with, with Spencer and Locke. But it's also, it's a little bit of a storytelling cheat because then it's like, it doesn't matter how distant the character is. You see that little red thing on the top of the he- their head and you know which character it is. So it's a little bit utilitarian. But Des, I was kind of like, well, here's a couple different options and Luca nailed it on the first try. And I was like, yep, that's that's our poor kid. Um, and so, yeah, he's he, he he's a real tearjerker every time I, I, I write him. But um, uh, seeing the way that he and Kit's friendship has sort of been built up and then devolved and now it's sort of at rock bottom and kind of seeing what the fallout's going to be in issue five. Um, that's probably my favorite part of that issue. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's hope for them. <laughs> um, to switch tack slightly, um, so yep. we'll 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 go with similar characters because Dorothy in the OZ, she, man, she's got traumas. <laughs> yes, uh, boy, the OZ. You know, um, that's a really special book for me, in, in a lot of ways, um, it's been a long time coming. Um, I when the first volume of Spencer and Locke came out, I did not know if I would write another book. I was very, you know, that's that's a book that, like, would you say, what if Calvin Hobbes grew up in Sin City? That's like a book that yeah. you either succeed or you fail, but you don't do it quietly. Um, there's no way to be quiet about a book like that. And so I was kind of like, you know, if people hate this book, and there will be people who hate it just based on pure concept and principle, um, you know, I don't, <laughs> it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Like, I, I was like, if people hate this, I'm not doing this again. Um and I didn't know what the ratio was going to be of people who got what we were doing and people who just hated it on principle. And thankfully, it was like 99% people got it and really seemed to like it. And the 1% who, who didn't like it, that's their prerogative. I don't, I don't blame them. Um, so when the dust settled and I was like, okay, I haven't been excommunicated. Like, I, I can still write these books. <laughs> um, I came up with three ideas. Um, and the first one was Spencer and Locke 2. The second was going to the chapel. And the third was the OZ. Um, and so, so like I said, this book has been uh, in the works for four years now. Um, um, and so it's, it's taken a long kind of winding journey for it. But I think the OZ is cut from a very similar cloth to Spencer and Locke. You know, um, not just sort of the reimagining of, of, of childhood um, uh, storytelling and, and, and making it dark, but um, the trauma. Uh, I think trauma is something that really, um, that's a common theme in my work, I think, even for lighter stuff yeah. like going to grapple. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Kit is sort of the exception to most of my characters where, like, she's not long marinating in her trauma like everybody else I write. She's <laughs> sort of reacting to it in real time. But Dorothy, um, yeah, Dorothy kind of comes from uh, both, you know, just sort of the exploration of, of trauma and psychology that I like to do in my work. But um <laughs> Before I wrote comics, I was a newspaper reporter, and uh, I one of the the sort of subbeats that I covered beyond sort of crime and state politics, I uh, I covered the local military beat and the local mental health beat, and so I interviewed a lot of returning veterans uh, to Berkshire County, Massachusetts, which was kind of already an economically depressed area in the height of the recession, and talking to soldiers coming back from um, Iraq and Afghanistan coming back home to the sort of economically depressed place and figuring out like, where do I go from here? You know, how do I relate to both the people who weren't, who don't, don't know what I went through overseas to the sort of 
nor um, noisy and bustling kind of lack of routine that makes up the the traditional American experience these days. Um, and sort of how do we cope? You know, um, how do you deal with the PTSD? How do you deal with traumatic brain injury? How do you deal with the hypervigilance? Um, and how do you deal with sort of lacking, feeling this lack of structure and this lack of direction that you felt when you were overseas? Um, and so Dorothy, Dorothy represents all that to me. Um, you know, she, she in many ways is my Sarah Connor. Uh, yeah. You know, and, uh, uh, and I think out of all the characters I've ever written, it's like a real like nose to nose between Dorothy and Locke of which, who's my all time favorite. Um, just because there's a lot of, there's a lot of depth to her. Um, and it, I, having written the, the, the entirety of the OZ, that's, that story is done. Um, and I can't wait for everybody to, to read it. Um, seeing the journey that she's taken, I'm proud of her, which is like a weird thing to say about a fictional character. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's, she's, she contains depths and, and multitudes and, and, and secrets and revelations, all of which, uh, readers will get to see, uh, over the course of our next two campaigns. Yeah, because you, of course, you did do that on Kickstarter. Was there yes. any particular reason why you decided to go the Kickstarter route with it? Yeah, um, there are a couple. Um, you know, one Kickstarter had been something that I had wanted to do for a long time. I'm, I'm friendly with a lot of local creators in Los Angeles who had a lot of success on Kickstarter. Um, uh, notably, my, my, my friend Charlie Stickney, um, uh, the, the creator of White Ash. Um, he and I are, are, are buds. We, we talk frequently, at least at least a couple times a week. Um, and so, um, you know, people like him, Russell Nahelty, um, who's got a laundry list of Kickstarter projects, uh, my buddy Ryland Grant, who we came up together in the Action Lab trenches, um, he's got a Kickstarter going on right now for his book, The Jump, which you should back uh, right now. Um, uh, you know, David Schrader and Clay Adams, who um, did the Nightmare Theater Horror Anthology that I was a part of over the summer. So um, those guys, um, oh, and Carla Nappi, uh, writer of Duplicate, which uh, just came out from Second Sight uh, this week as well, which you should definitely pick up. So all of them together, you know, I would see them at local signings, I would see them at cons, and so, you know, we, we would hang out every time we'd see each other. And they were all kind of trying to press gang me, being like, you should really do a Kickstarter, you should really do a Kickstarter. <laughs> And at the time, I was like, I don't know, like, I don't know if I want to do that. And it was Charlie that really kind of shook me out of it. And he said, listen, you know, there are people that go to their shop every Wednesday. They're the Wednesday Warriors, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, now imagine the people who you see at cons every month. Those are the people who are buying their books primarily at cons. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there are some people that buy their books exclusively on Comixology. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm following. He goes, well, there are some people that primarily buy their books on Kickstarter. That's where they buy their books. And I realized, like, oh, there's a whole demographic of readers that I've done no outreach to. And so, you know, the gears started turning. And then what wound up happening was um, the, the pandemic. Um, you know, Diamond had their, their shutdown. And I think that sent shockwaves to the industry. I think everybody started thinking, well, what am I going to do? And um, a lot of acquisitions pipelines that had been open suddenly constricted. Um, there were a lot of publishers that had expressed interest in the OZ, but never like, where's the contract? You know, like that you, you don't have it until you give me a contract. And so I realized like we had two issues of the OZ done. And I was like, well, the pandemic shut everything down and um, there's no cons. And I have two issues of a book that I really feel strongly about. 
why don't I solve one problem with another? And I'll introduce myself to the Kickstarter community with my absolute A game. And it'll give the OZ that kind of home. And um, boy, you know, at the same time, you like, it sounds confident when I say it that way. But it's, it, feel, it felt like jumping out of a plane. Um, you know, you're kind of like, oh boy, I hope the shoot opens. And um, thankfully, I think the shoot opened really uh, uh, better than I could have hoped. Um, you know, people seem to really respond to that book. And so um, we're hard at work on, on the next installment. Um, we had some COVID-related delays uh, for the art production side of things. But uh, artist Ruben Rojas is, is back in the saddle. Um, he's drawn. We're, we're getting close to a critical mass of pages. So I'm hoping in the next month or two we'll, uh, we'll start the, ne- the second campaign. Um, but it's beautiful. The work that he's doing um and uh like i've said the series is written so you know that's 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 100 percent done so um you know knock on wood as long as ruben doesn't get hit by a car like this will be this will be all set but um yeah it just feels like this the whole experience made me think there's a real diaspora of readership people talk about all the time oh the comics industry you know it's dwindling there's less and less and less readers and maybe there's some element of truth to it but i think it's a, it's a fragmented landscape and any creator should be thinking about their work in this industry in existential terms. How do we bring that diaspora back together and have them break bread together? Um, and that's something I'm thinking about with all the concepts I work on, because uh, I tried to work on stuff that's maybe not quite direct market friendly, but it's also now in the way that we distribute these things. Um, and so the OZ, I think, was really vindicating uh, in that regard. And I- I've said, people keep asking, oh, is it going to come out from another publisher? You know, and, I, and I've said, we don't have any plans with publishers at the moment. Um, you know, if that changes, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to let people know. But I am committed, no, regardless, whatever happens, this book will be completed on Kickstarter. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I will not allow um, any publisher to not let us finish this on Kickstarter. That is a non-starter for me. Um, because the Kickstarter community, they're the ones that put their money where their mouths are um, for that book. And so it is the absolute least I can do is yeah. make sure that those readers can can finish the book as it was intended yeah that that's really good it's interesting you say because i think there are a lot of ways that people consume comics these days it's not it's not the old wednesday you know the wednesday warriors are still there although less so in the middle of a pandemic um right yeah I mean, it's certainly made i consume more stuff on comiXology these days Mm -hmm. because i simply can't physically get to a comic shop yeah so yeah. it's like yeah it, it's good to explore those different groups and i yeah. think like you say kickstarter is a great unifier in that you will get comics readers who read digital who read physical who like to you know all of that so it's nice to have all of them together in one place yeah. and i will say the other thing that that hopefully i'm not talking out of school when i say this but it's it's also it 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 shines a light on how dysfunctional the direct market pre-order system is. Yes. Um, you know, uh, Kickstarter, I got to say, it was the easiest thing in the world to be like, here's a link, buy it at this link. And, you know, it, it takes it takes two minutes to set up a Kickstarter account and then boom, you've got your credit card in there and then you can, you're off to the races. Whereas, you know, you got to call your comic shop, you got to f- tell them the pre-order code. Sometimes the comic shop doesn't, you know, doesn't have that issue of, of, of previews. Sometimes they just don't order it. Um, you know, it becomes like a, a whole thing. And then, you know, the comic shops, I don't blame them. I mean, you know, what happens if you're left on the hook for a pre-order that you'd never pick up? Yeah. Um, you know, 
they're the ones left holding the bag financially. So it's, it, I will say Kickstarter is, is, is a welcome change of pace in that regard where it's just, you cut through the red tape and you want a book, you order it and it'll arrive when it arrives. And you'll, you feel, I think readers feel closer having known that like, we're kind of co-producers in a way yeah and the, that that you are directly responsible for this book existing and um i think that really drives that kind of engagement and uh, investment in both the book and and hopefully my career as a writer which hopefully then will translate into oh if you like the oz you can pick up books like scouts honor or you can go back in my bibliography and check out spencer and Locke and go into the chapel um you know i i want to be baskin robbins i want to come up with 31 flavors something for everybody and I think Kickstarter is a really good way for people to feel somehow less, like less of a risk, even though it's usually more of a financial investment. Yeah. Uh, you know, they it, it feels easier, I think, uh, for people to to dip their toes into the pool. It does, and like you said, it does give them a little bit of feeling of ownership as well. Yeah. Like yeah, I helped make this happen. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I'm hoping, you know, I know it's been a little longer than, than, than I would have liked, you know, for, for the, the next installment of the OZ to come out. Granted, it means that I don't have to split my attention between two different books. Um, but uh, I promise it's going to be worth the wait. I'm very excited uh, with where the series is coming. All I'll say is issue one was the quiet issue. Blimey. <laughs> that's that. Yeah, that's going to be interesting then. Um. I will have to say, how big of a fan of The Wizard of Oz are you? <laughs> yeah, I, I really like The Wizard of Oz. You know, it's it's one of those things, it's like, I think it comes through cultural osmosis. You know, I, I saw the Judy Garland film as a kid, and I actually wound up reading a lot of the L. Frank Baum books in college. Um, I took a class in adolescent literature, and I wound up writing a term paper about how L. Frank Baum kind of was doing the shared universe stuff decades before Marvel. Um, and that was my term paper, was a comparative analysis between um, uh, the the Oz universe and the Marvel universe in in, in the '60s, and um, yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things that I mean, Baum in a lot of ways was ahead of his time. Um, you know, I mean, especially the way that he played with archetypes, um, and I think that's the thing that really grabbed me. That was the thing I had the most fun with with the OZ is that you know, you know, just through cultural osmosis, Dorothy, Tin Man, Scarecrow, Cowardly Lion, Toto, and those are such strong archetypes, but then they, they, they're malleable. They bend in certain ways, but they all still feel true to the characters. And so seeing how the Tin Man can evolve into the Tin Soldier, for example, where he's sort of, he's a character who's been, he's been sort of blown up and put back together so many times that he's turned into sort of this patchwork juggernaut. Um, you know, that's super cool to me. Seeing the way that we uh, we're going to tackle the uh, the cowardly lion in issue two, which anybody who's picked up issue one, you can see a little teaser at the end of our of of Ruben's amazing design for the lion. Um, I think that's his favorite out of all the characters. Um, you know, what happens to courage? Courage when you're fighting for yourself is very different when courage when you're a head of state, when you're the 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 king of the animal kingdom. What is what does courage become then? And uh, and there's there's certainly a story of legacy that goes on in his story that I think will bond him to 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 Dorothy in a big way. Um, but yeah, it's just you know seeing those sorts of characters and then being able to remix them. Those that's what I like the most. Um, I always gravitate towards strong imagery, and then figuring out how can I twist it. Um, and boy, you really can't do as far as source material goes. You really can't do much better than the Wizard of Oz. 
That's true, because I did like how you took those recognisable elements, because we all, yeah. like you say, we all know the Wizard of Oz, and then just do something really different with them, but it's still true to that original archetype. It, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, it's, it's we've we've got some fun stuff in uh, planned, um, you know, and it's just I don't know certain ways it was a little therapeutic, um, you know. I mean, I guess light spoilers on is that um, you know Toto's story in this book, um, which is probably my favorite. It's probably my single favorite thing of that issue, um, and I think that that was very personal for me um, for for long time fans of my social media um you know I, I i have a little karen terrier at home ruby but before that um i uh, i had my parents terrier holly and um, i started writing the oz the same month that we took holly in and i got those pages with toto about two months after she passed and it's funny i without spoiling too much toto wasn't supposed to be in the series for very long um, but we, uh, Holly, uh, passed from cancer. And so we, uh, we buried her about a week before everything shut down from the pandemic. And as we were taking her to like radiation, um, I said, well, I can't, I can't do this in my work. Um, you know, and so, uh, Toto was supposed to be like a Ben Kenobi figure where he shows up and then, you know, sacrifices himself. And I'm like, nope, not doing that. <laughs> so, uh, Toto actually has a, a, a much meatier role through the whole series. He's, going to be part of Dorothy's crew, just like the, the tin soldier and the lion. And so uh, seeing the way that Ruben draws Toto, I'm just like, oh, gets me every single time. Um, but yeah, it sort of is, uh, is my love letter to my puppy um, in a lot of ways. And uh, so, yeah, thrilled with how it turned out. Well, I'm, I'm glad because Toto is my favorite part of that. I yeah. have to, I'll admit. Yeah. Um, another favorite thing I have is going to the chapel. <laughs> Thank which you. is which i think is immensely underrated but that Thank might just be me no you know it's i i'm glad you said that i mean you know it's that's a book that's i think the most direct market counter programming i've ever written um i can't tell you how hard it was to get that book off the ground um you know i you know on the heels of spencer and Locke, which you know was about as well received as an indie book could have been when it came out i mean it got it was it was optioned it got five ringo nominations it was like yeah. And for Action Lab title, it was it was certainly making a, a dent. Um, and I was like, oh, the next book I want to do is Die Hard Meets Wedding Crashers. And I can't <laughs> tell you how many people were like, I don't get it. Or like, well, this seems like a funny concept, but we don't know how to sell this thing. Um, and uh, so I give Action Lab a lot of credit, like that they at least were like, well, we trust you. We we know you can pull it off. So so run with it. Um but yeah, I really like that book. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like that was a lot of my indie books seemed like the little indies that could like they're very underestimated until they come out. And then people are like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. And I'm like, why? Where were you when I was pitching this? Um, but yeah, you know, I, I it, a lot of that book speaks to my beliefs in the comics industry as a whole is, you know, you can pitch to the Wednesday Warriors and I love the Wednesday Warriors, but like there's a much wider readership out there potential even potential readership and so people who might not like spencer and Locke, either based on the content or based on the premise or just they're not you know newspaper strip fans i can say well listen you don't read comics what what if you check this one out tell me what you think um that's my comic for non-comics readers and um yeah it was inspired by uh i was the uh, the best man 
at my oldest friend's wedding, and I did a terrible job. Uh, it was it was it was the universe truly conspired against me. I uh, I uh, it was inspired directly by the cursed bachelor party that I had planned. Um, I uh, I wound up getting a kidney stone 48 hours before I was supposed to fly cross country for this bachelor party. So I was grounded. The the doctor said you cannot fly. So I'm sitting there on painkillers, and then I I find out the Airbnb was trashed. Um, I had rented an inflatable uh, sumo suits for the backyard, not knowing the backyard was at like a 45 degree incline. Um, you know, uh, you know the booze cruise uh, uh, got canceled, like all sorts of stuff. That and I'm trying to like troubleshoot this in California while my friends are in Asheville, North Carolina. And um, I, I thought to myself while I was sort of buzzed on painkillers, well, thank God this didn't happen during the wedding. And then I said, but what if it did? And I, so I started thinking, like, what's the worst thing that could happen at this wedding? And I, I thought, you know, first thing was, oh, you know, if the father or the bride hired some leg breakers to get my friend to buzz off. And I was like, no, that's not the worst thing. The worst thing would be if this bride got cold feet. And that became the emotional core of going to the chapel. Um, you know, I think, you know, we see in pop culture all the time the guys having cold feet. But having a woman with cold feet, I think, it was kind of different. It was a different angle. And... um and I think also, you know, I thought it was important. I love Spencer and Locke, but I think the at least the first volume, a weakness that we had uh, was the lack of representation, and that was that was sort of structurally unavoidable. Um, George Santiago Jr. and I talked about it, like you know, should we make Locke a character of color? And I, I said, I think it will veer into stereotype if we do that, especially because I'm a white writer. Suddenly saying like the the gritty urban Calvin and Hobbes, if it's a character of color. They're going to say, oh, well, it's because he's a character of color. And that's not the kind of representation I want to do. But I wanted to sort of make up for that um, in, in, in my next work. And so, uh, you know, having two romantic leads being men of color was really important to me. Uh, you know, um, this was before Crazy Rich Asians came out. So like having like a, a, an Asian man as like the sexy dreamboat character was like kind of rare at the time. Um, and, and, and having sort of the, 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 the blurred uh, the black nerd character as um you know as as another romantic lead that was also something that hadn't really seen much of outside of like maybe this is us um and even then randall has never really been portrayed as like a super romantic character um and so i was like this is sort of a way of rectifying past inequities in my one and only piece of work at this point um but yeah it's just it's an important book for me and i feel like it's sort of um it was certainly a left a left turn um, but I think it's one that showed a lot of people that, oh, he's not just the guy who's going to do like ruin my childhood. Like he's also the guy who's going to ruin marriage. Uh, Yay! So, uh, but yeah, I, I, uh, like I said, Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors. And, uh, this was certainly a, a different kind of flavor that I wanted to make sure we had. Yeah. Cause I was going to say it, it's such a contrast to Spencer and Locke in a good way. Yes. Um, <laughs> cause we it, know, was a, we know. it was a reaction. It's yeah. honestly a reaction uh, to Spencer and Locke, you know, just because every time I write a book, I get a to-do list, you know, and it's sort of, this is what I want to do in a book. And I cross a few things off every time I write a book, but I usually add a bunch of things on. And so I was like, I don't want to do something super uh, gritty in the next book. And I want to have a bigger cast of characters and a more diverse set of characters. And I was like, you know what? Let's do it in one setting. Let's see how that goes. And no word balloons, because or no thought, or, uh, no no thought captions. Let's just make this thing really hard on me. Um, and yeah, it was definitely. Um, it's certainly the longest 
book that I've ever taken to outline. Uh, maybe besides Spencer and Lock Three, and that's just because I've been bouncing between projects. But um, that took months to outline that book. Um, but thankfully, once I did, there was very little deviation. Uh, once I that was a book that when it was outlined, it was set in stone, and I think I scripted the whole thing in about two months. Um, you know, just shotgunned right through it. Um, but uh, yeah, Gavin Guidry and I, we had to kind of like play the whole thing out like a football play. Where it was sort of like he he did a fully three D chapel. We we sort of consulted on what rooms needed to be where to make the scenes work, and then it was kind of like, all right, uh, Jesse's here, Tom's here, Emily's here, and really we kind of did like the X's and O's through scene to scene to scene to make sure that it all fit within the space. Yeah, because I was going to say there's a lot of moving pieces of plot there in terms of the number of characters and yeah. little things that happen and then come back later on. And yeah, I, I was going to ask how, how it was to juggle all of that. It was, it was tough. It was definitely it was a hard script to write. It was a hard book to write. Um, like I said, it took months to get the, the outline down. And granted, I was still pretty green at everything. You know, I at that point, all I had written was... Spencer and Locke one, and I think I was in the process of outlining volume two. So this was this was basically like my second or third book. Um, so I was still kind of figuring everything out. And um, yeah, it was a hard book. Um, and that's not on top of I've I've said this now having outlined, I'm working on another comedy right now. Um, comedy's hard. It's so much harder than drama because drama, you just have to make the story math add up that like the story makes sense. Comedy, you have to do all that and be funny. And so you really have to be pulling like triple duty for every scene. And so you, there's a lot of thought that has to go into it. And and that's not on top of just figuring out like comics hit differently than film or television. So you have to kind of figure out like one liners hit a lot easier, but like physical comedy, it's very easy to go overboard. Um, you know, it starts going into like, you know, Garth Ennis territory. And so you have to really kind of like pull back and figure out like, how do I hit that balance? Um, so yeah, it's it's tough, and sometimes I'm sure a lot of writers would say it's probably to diminishing returns. Um, comedy's a harder sell, I think, in the direct market. But um, at the same time, I see my body of work as like holistic, um, you know. And so I'm kind of like, I don't see my books as individual things because I'm always thinking, what's it going to be like when I go to a con, and I have all my books in front of me. And so that's why the Baskin Robbins analogy rears its ugly head again, where I'm just like, you know, I can't just have all chocolate flavors, you know, like I need something a little lighter. I need some sorbets in there. Some, even just some palate cleansers um, just before people kind of dive into whatever next bleak thing that I ruin their childhood with <laughs> next. So we'll, we'll mention ruining childhood because yeah. Spencer and Locke. Is, yeah. Calvin and Hobbes grow up and fight crime. Um, did you read a lot of Calvin and Hobbes? I've never met anyone who hasn't read any, I'll be honest. I did. I, did. I, I, I came by it honestly. I mean, I'm a third-generation comics reader. Uh, my mother was a comics fan. My grandfather was a comics fan. And growing up, Calvin and Hobbes was one of my mother's favorite strips. Um, you know, I was born right around the time, I think Bill Watterson started, I want to say it was in 88. I think it was, I think it was around Thanksgiving of 88 is when he started, I, I, I think, give or take... A, a year or so um and i was born in 86 so you know like my mom would have these calvin and Hobbes strips um in her office she'd have them in the kitchen um and 
the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which was my hometown paper, had a really robust comic section. Uh, so props to them for that. I would read the comic section every morning. And, uh, you know, I loved Calvin and Hobbes as a kid. You know, I just thought, oh, like the art is so, you know, is, is so fun. And like Calvin seems like, you know, such a little stinker. And like, that's so fun. But it was when I revisited it as an adult that I was like, this guy was like so ahead of his time. He was such a trailblazer. Um, and so I had all the collections and, you know, I, I, I would read through all those. The way that it happened, though, to do this concept is actually a little backwards. Um, Frank Miller was the very first comics writer that made me realize as a kid that real writers made these books. Um, like, it was the first time that, like, I was seven, I think, when I got Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. And it, like, blew my mind. Um, you know, and I was just like, oh, that is a voice. That's a distinct voice that's very different than any of the other comics I'd been reading in the 90s, which sort of felt almost like the death of the author, you know, sort of it, it removed, so to speak. The art was the voice. This, it was like, oh, you can hear a voice. So when I decided to kind of coax myself into maybe trying to write my own comic for the first time, I was like, well, I kind of want to do an homage to Frank Miller, the classic Frank. And I thought, as a fan of like mashups and, and, and music remixes and the like, I said, what's the weirdest thing that I could throw against old school Frank Miller? And the problem is, is like a lot of the preliminary ideas they had, it felt very shock for shock value's sake. You know, you could do like the wire meets Sesame street, you know um, you know, where colossal condor is like the, is the, is the drug dealer on Sesame street. Uh, but like that's shock. And I am a big believer. Shock gets your foot in the door once. It does not build engagement. And, and, I, I think shock, a lot of people turn it into something exploitive and cheap and alienating. Um, so I was like, none of these ideas feel like an idea. It feels like a sketch. But when I thought of Calvin and Hobbes, that's like the light bulb went off. And I was like, I thought of like a hard-boiled detective beat up and kind of grinning in the rain and he's holding onto a stuffed animal. And I was like, what's that guy's like home life like? What was his upbringing like? And those questions turned into Spencer and Locke. Um, and that really kind of became my meditation on trauma and, and particularly childhood trauma and PTSD and kind of how, how our childhood scars shape us as adults and particularly unorthodox coping me mechanisms. Um, Memento is one of my favorite movies of all time. And so the idea of having a character who sees the world differently because of his disability and has to kind of leverage that to navigate the world. That was something that I thought was really not just interesting, but I thought it was kind of powerful and kind of inspiring. And so, um, yeah, that it's probably the proudest thing I've ever, I've ever been working on anything. Um, it was, it, it's a book that certainly changed my life. Um, it was actually this week, uh, marked the four year anniversary of the first issue coming out. I was, I was going to say, how does it, how does it feel to look back and think for, you know, how did you feel four years ago when it first came out? I was terrified. I was every issue of Spencer and Locke that has ever come out. I've gone to sleep terrified uh, thinking, is this going to be the issue where they turn on us? Is this going to be the issue where we push the envelope too hard? Uh, George Santiago Jr. And I, we always had conversations about like, how do we tell this story in a way that's like respectful and humane um, doesn't necessarily pull its punches, but that like, we don't, we're not trying to be gross. You know, um, I can say, for example, the, 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 the second issue, um, in particular, which I think might've been some of the more combustible material that we've ever worked on. We redrew that flashback page three times. Um, because I, I, 
I we made it. it was, this cannot be seen as sexy. This cannot be seen as funny. This cannot be seen as titillating or comedic or punching down. This we have a really thin tightrope to walk. Uh, and so, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, in certain ways, I I pinch myself saying I can't believe I've gotten as far as I have in those four years. Um, and then talking about like what I was saying earlier, that's where the gratefulness comes in. Um, on the other hand, you know, I, I keep thinking like, oh, there's so much more, so much more I, w- I want to do. Um, you know, pacing myself is the hardest challenge I have as a writer. Um, is, is, is I, I feel good about the quality of output that I put out. I like to work better on the speed. Um, you know, we're still working on Spencer and Locke volume three. Um, we're doing a, a Garfield themed serial killers picking off the peanuts gang and, um, Spencer and Locke, um, and, and an unexpected new partner kind of find themselves in the crosshairs. Um, and, uh, the thing I keep saying is between volumes one and two, I didn't have any other projects. So I kind of wrote them as consecutively as one could. Um, I've written seven books since then. Uh, since volume two Mm. and so i uh, and i think in part there's a lot of moving parts to this project in particular um volume two we did calvin and Hobbes versus beetle bailey there's not a ton of preconceived notions about beetle bailey and we were even able to put in like high lois in there and um and brenda star this it's like climbing everest three times um you know everybody has notions about peanuts everybody has (laughs) notions about uh, uh, Garfield. Everybody has notions about Calvin and Hobbes, and so doing all the research while juggling other projects, um, it's taken longer than I would have liked, um, and that's entirely on me uh, as the guy still writing it. Um, but George and I are in full agreement that we would much rather it take time and get it right. This is likely the third and final arc. Um, we are writing it as such. Um, is sort of the exclamation point at the end of the sentence that is Spencer and Locke. And I want to make sure we, we do it right. Um, and so there's a lot of moving parts to it, but um, I'm sort of, I'm finally at a spot where my, my dance card is starting to open up again. And I'm kind of like, all right, like I, let's take what I've learned in all these other books and apply it. Um, but I still, I love Spencer and Locke. I can't wait. It's, it's, it's the book that sells the most for me at conventions. Uh, it has for a very long time. Uh, I can't wait for conventions to come back so I can I can start selling it again. But um, that book's my baby, and uh, it really it changed my life. I was I was going to say it is it's a really I'm quite happy to wait as a fan of Spencer and Locke. I'm quite happy to wait because if it's going to be good, which I know it will be, the wait will be worth it. It'll be worth it. So I was going to say, is there a yay volume three? <laughs> Yes, Whenever you is, get around to it, no pressure. It is it is happening, and 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 I can tell you the team's back together for it. We've all committed for it. George is is excited to do it. Jason Smith is excited to ride shotgun with him on the colors. Um, so yeah, we are we are thrilled um, for to, to to come back on that. Uh, Monhouse and and Joe Mulvey are excited to do uh, variants as well. Um, so we're 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 getting the team back uh, for this book, and um, yeah, it's it's. We've got some very ambitious things planned for it. Um, this is just as much our love letter to Bill Watterson as it is to Frank Miller. And um, yeah, I, I can't, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but this is going to be sort of really the real love letter that we've been building towards for a long time. That's, that's really good to know. Um, Cause yeah, it, it is one of those books that although it is, it has a lot of bleak moments, there is still such a Locke is such a great character, 
with it, you know, poor guy. <laughs> he's he's close to my heart. I I you know Spencer and Locke. I I I, I mean I I shouldn't. I didn't grow up in an an abusive household. I mean, um, but I, I I have my own experiences with trauma, um, for sure. And um, I always say Spencer's me in a good day and Locke's me in a bad day. <laughs> um, and and so you know those those characters they 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 do have a lot of my voice to them um but uh yeah i I mean Locke is just a character you know i think he's kind of in the vein of almost like a peter parker where you know you beat him down and he's so beaten down but he's the guy who's just too stubborn and he will not stay down and uh, i i i love that about him as a character i think it's always something that's very inspiring to me um you know anytime i get my legs kicked out from under me in the comics industry which happens more than you'd expect um i uh I always think about Locke, um, and uh, that's sort of always that's the thing that gets me back up off the mat. Um, and so, yeah, he's a character that means a lot to me. And um, having readers who have grown up um, in in abusive households, um, or who have dealt with mental illness, or who have dealt with trauma, coming to to, to me at cons and saying that the character meant something to them. Um, I mean, I love getting reviews and all that, but that's the best praise I'm ever going to get as a writer. Yeah. Um, so it really means a lot. And I just, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that people have been enjoying the book and I, I, I'm glad that they've been patient with me. Uh, and I, 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 we are committed to making sure that volume three will be worth the wait. Excellent. So we've mentioned that Spencer Unlock volume three is coming. Before we finish, is there anything else that you're currently working on that people should know oh. about? Boy, well, you know, there's a lot of things that there's a lot of things that aren't announced yet or don't have homes yet. I, there's a <laughs> variety of things. I'm I'm working on uh, a horror book right now. I'm working on uh, I've written a sci-fi YA book that we're starting to slowly put together into into production. Um, Spencer and Lock Three, uh, a comedy <laughs> that uh, we're, we're we're in the process of trying to find a home for. Uh, so that's that's four unwritten books um uh, plus finishing the oz um you know those are all really important to me so that's that's almost an even half dozen right there um george and i uh, we actually we just worked on a a one shot called roxy rewind which was in the pages of the big hype anthology um that's sort of our love letter to classic spider-man um oh actually you know what i i keep forgetting about uh, grand theft astro um so that is an even half dozen uh we're slowly but surely getting the artwork together on that that that's been in the process for a very long time books written Fast and the Furious meets Back to the Future in space. Mm. Um, I, I love that book. It, it, my only regret is it's not out already. Um, but you know, just based on like COVID and like the craziness with artist scheduling, um, it's slowly starting to trickle out. Um, but I'm very happy with how that book has turned out, and I think that'll really fit nicely in that space. It's not as bleak as anything I've written, but it's really fun and action packed. So. Um, yeah, you know that's that's sort of on my plate right now. Um, but uh, I I I get restless easy, so there's a lot more stuff that I I'm sure I'll be working on in the months to come. Excellent. And one final question: Is there anything that you're currently reading that you would like to recommend to anyone? Boy, well, you know I can't say enough good things about the X Men line uh, over at Marvel. Um, I've said that that those books have gotten me through the pandemic. Um, I I'm jealous at how just bold and brash and ambitious those books are um and 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 so you know i saw previews for x corp today and i was really excited to 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 read that that'll be at the same same day as scouts honor number five so (laughs) those up um 
let's see some other some other books. Uh, Giga by my my friend Alex Pachtel. Um, really, you should you should really read. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've read it. Red Force. I have. Terrific. Yeah. Um, I I think that's my favorite of Alex's work. Um, uh, boy, you know, uh, James Tynan's work on Batman and Joker. You know, I would not have expected to like a Joker book. Um, the movie was distinctly not for me. Uh, but it, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a marketing misdirect because it's really Jim Gordon the series, not Joker the series, and I love it. Two issues in. Uh, so yeah, those are the ones that are coming to mind. But boy, I always I I hate those questions because I always there's so much stuff that I I, I think of after the fact, yeah. and I'm like, oh, I should have I should have shouted out this guy. Um, uh, oh, and you know what? I'll give uh, Charlie Stickney's White Ash a shout. You should really, if you haven't read it, terrific, terrific stuff. And uh, I say that I, if 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 he wasn't if he wasn't so damn friendly, I'd I'd, I'd be jealous. But um, he's he's just a seriously <laughs> seriously terrific and talented creator. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. I know you have to get off and take a, take the dog to daycare. Well, um, yes. But yeah, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you my very pleasure. much. Thank you and, so much for having me. Yeah, and I shall be continuing to check out Scouts on it. I'm looking forward to issue five next month. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. You're welcome.